sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist employed as Executive Director of Institutional Analytics, Effectiveness, and Strategic Planning at Jacksonville University. And with me today is Brian Smikowski, a political scientist at the University of Idaho. Glad to have you back, Brian. Good to be back, Will. And this is a great week, I think, for us to obviously get to do the show. We have a lot that we're going to be able to talk about. We'll see how uh, how long some of the stories take us versus others. but. One thing to obviously start out with this week is uh, the passing of former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Um, and Brian, anything you want to share about Stevens or his time or anything uh, memory-wise for, for our listeners? Yeah, it was one of those one of those deaths that kind of um, hits you because, you know, 99 years of age, robust uh, career. And I think pertinent to the program is uh, the fact that sometimes presidents make appointments where they expect them to be their um, philosophical, ideological, and partisan ally. And sometimes they, they drift from that. And he's a classic example. You know, he was appointed by Nixon to the uh, circuit court in 1970. And after that, he's appointed by General Ford to the U.S. Um, Supreme Court. And, you know, he gets to the Supreme Court unanimously, and he did not serve as um, a steady conservative voice. In fact, you know, he never really was on the left-hand liberal side of the equation, but it felt that way. Because when you're coming out of the Earl Warren years and we're watching a court increasingly move bit by bit to the right, he occupied a centrist position. But I think um, as it relates to some of the big issues of our time, you know, he spoke out in major dissents, you know, these were dissenting opinions a long time ago on gay rights and race-conscious districting, um, which resonate today when we're having the Supreme Court basically beg off of issues involving districting because it's too difficult or it's sociological gobbledygook. So, um, yeah, his passing is uh, one of those things that, you know, we could occupy a whole program on uh, with regard to his role on a court and uh, ideology, but it's... Um, it, it sort of feeds in a little bit to where we'll be going as we talk about some of the changes with Planned Parenthood and the uh, assertive position that the agency is taking with regard to advocacy uh, in the era when the court is tilting increasingly to the right in a pretty firm position. In a pretty quick position. I mean, it's, it's funny because you're right. I mean, I think Stevens had a, a lasting legacy, and I obviously think that for a lot of us on the right, Stevens was always viewed as being you know, away from the left without remembering that historically he was there because of um, Republican control. Um, definitely mm-hmm. a, a loss for the court and for, for jurisprudence in the country. Um, and then outside of our, our normal show, too, just remember that obviously I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about the fact that it's the 50th anniversary of the moonwalk. Um, and I think that's, again, especially pertinent today. And we could argue any direction we want for that. I'm sure uh, somebody's out there thinking that we might need to figure out how to move to some other planet soon if we keep going with global warming. Um, or it could be, again, back to the, the nationalism idea of we need to be the first to Mars or the first to other areas. Um, but in general, I think it's important that we spend a few minutes talking about uh, the moonwalk, its significance in our political history, um, and just our significance in general in terms of technology and space travel. Yeah, I agree. I think when we look at this through the, the lens of history, I was I was looking at some of the, the polling data because we, you know, we have some of these 
funny Hollywood memories of, you know, from Dumb and Dumber, where he's like, the man walks on a moon. No way. You know, um, and he's <laughs> no reading way. it, obviously, in a, you know, in the 1990s when the movie came out uh, or the 2000s, whenever it came out. And um, it, it seems like through the lens of history, like something that really would have galvanized a society. Right. People remember where they were the minute that it happened. And we have these images of people being glued to, you know, black and white broadcast images. Uh, but the reality is there really wasn't a ton of support for it, even at the time, because when you go back and look at some of the, the Gallup data from the first mission, the Apollo 11 astronauts who was still in quarantine when they were returning from the moon and Americans were asked by Gallup um, about whether they would support a funding a mission to Mars, which is really kind of where the conversation is going now. So like moon, been there, done that. Is it really about going beyond and thinking about a place that we can inhabit for scientific purposes and to accommodate a population that we can't seem to control? Back then, 39% were in favor of funding a Mars mission, and 53% were solidly opposed to it. Um, the cost was seen as prohibitive and astronomical. But then It we probably get, was. And it, and it definitely is, because when you think about what the costs are now, you know, literally the billions upon billions of dollars to send one uh, mission to Mars, for example, the question is why, right? And, and we still get these questions that come up. Um, about why, why, why do we go out there? Is it a pride factor? Is it um, being first at something and being able to say, look at us, we were the first person to get, you know, a manned presence on another planet? Or is it also about scientific inquiry? And one of the, one of the things that I like about the idea of thinking about the future of space travel in light of the 50th anniversary is that a lot of scientific innovation and breakthroughs and uh, curiosity seeking comes from imagining something that seems impossible. When you become complacent and you you do the same kind of thing, we have a lot of scientific inquiry and breakthrough on a daily basis. But when you literally push the envelope of what's possible, is when you find this great spillover effect in terms of scientific reasoning and in terms of scientific progress. And even you know, guys like Stephen Hawking, you know, quite some time ago, were saying. We're really going to have to think about uh, a place for people beyond this little blue dot that we've got. And it's true, but it, it also just always raises the question to me of not just the the so what or what are we getting back? I mean, obviously, I think there is a part of this that's kind of that that FOMO experience where we have this fear that somebody's going to beat us there and we're going to learn all about this foreign planet by looking at some country's space mission on Facebook. Um but I do think there is a legitimate question of not necessarily what do we get out, but what are we doing it instead of? And I think mm -hmm. that's an interesting conversation today where, obviously, I mean, if we look at the news cycle this week, outside of, of what we've seen with Trump and, and the squad, we've obviously seen a lot about finances and corporations and appropriate profits. Um, we've seen, you know, a Disney heir go back to Disneyland and talk about the just the unfairness between average worker salaries and what the CEO's making. And then we're talking about taking with that overpaid in their eyes CEOs making, multiplying it by some huge number and saying, we're going to spend this much to send this thing to Mars so we can get pictures and see, is there water? Are there plants? What's going on? What's happening? And I do have to wonder, again, even coming from the right at this, how do we explain that to a kid who's hungry and foster care? Um, how do we explain that to somebody sleeping at a border shelter? How do we explain that to a homeless vet that, you know, we don't have 
programs that necessarily take care of you. But don't worry, in 50 years, you can get on a rocket and go to Mars, and mm-hmm. we'll try to figure out something there. I still have a hard time finding that, of, of really drawing the bridge between those two sides. Um, because, again, there's just such a cost associated with it. And I think you're right. The return's there. It's just that return is by no means immediate. Um, you know, yeah, obviously, we've seen the pictures of the Mars rover. It's great. It's beautiful. It's really cool and interesting. But is it doing anything tangible for me today? Not that I've experienced. Right. And I think one of the, the responses to that goes back to something that Neil deGrasse Tyson made, which is, it's worth it if you know the reason that in, that it galvanizes a generation of students um, to become scientists, to become engineers, to become mathematicians, um, basically uh, advocacy for the STEM fields. But as long as they have stimulate. textbooks that have been updated in the last 30 years. Well, yeah, and there there's, there's truths to both sides. Like, on the one hand, we could say that, that it's um, it's whether you look for the, the direct or the indirect payback, right? The indirect is that when you have a generation of future astronauts, right, you know, very few people are going to be there. If you have a generation of people who get inspired by science and you advance scientific reasoning, right, that's that's pretty huge because, you know, I live in a part of the country where I just went to um, Whidbey Island, which I didn't know was sort of like the ground zero for the Flat Earth Society. And, um, you know, there are people that would argue that <laughs> the world is flat and the um, – you know, there is no moon. And um, if there is, why would we go there anyway? But the reality is, um, at a time when some of us, I think, fear that we're losing the capacity for meaningful scientific inquiry and scientific informed scientific reasoning, it's good to inspire kids. Now, the, 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 the other side of it, of course, is that inspiring a kid to become a scientist presumes that you fed a kid to be able to go to school and have a, a, a quality enough education. So the um, the cost benefit analysis hard is hard to demonstrate. Yeah, it's tough. And again, like you said, I think and using Neil deGrasse Tyson always helps because it's hard to argue against anything that man says. Um, but the concept of obviously it's going to have that inspirational aspect, and hopefully that encourages students to stay dedicated to school. But I just hope there's support to help them be good in these fields. Um, not just to be interested, not just to use their imagination as small children, but to really become scientists who can help us make positive breakthroughs here. Because obviously, I mean, that longer-term impact's definitely possible. And I don't yeah. think we can play down the nationalism aspect here. I mean, if we go back and look what happened 50 years ago, we know that was partially driven by geopolitics. Um, yeah, there's the take everybody else out angle. of this. We're not there. No, no, we're not. and. You know, we, it's one of those things where you could be seen as, you know, are we resting on our laurels that we we boldly went where nobody went before, and we planted the flag, and um, what have we what have we done in between? Now, of course, we have a history of accomplishment in between, but what's that big galvanizing thing where we said, hey, look, in this one regard, we really are number one, right? As um, you know, as a political force, as an economic force, as a scientific force, we 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 went beyond imagining something, and we actually did it. There is that. There is also the argument that you know, from in 2008, when Stephen Hawking gave a lecture at NASA's 50th anniversary, he argued that if the human race is to continue for another million years, we'll have to boldly go where no one has gone before with reference to expanding our reach out into the galaxy. 
Now, now the fact of the matter is, if you say that in the current political land uh, climate, and say let's think about life for another million years, we're having a hard time getting people to sit at the table and have a conversation about, um, you know, glaciers. We're having a hard time having people sit down and have a conversation about what life's going to be like for the next generation coming up um, in in ten years, twenty years, and thirty years. Well, plus on top of that, I mean. By by this focus and discussion on Mars, are we like saying we've tapped out the moon already? Um, is that not an option? Is that not a possibility? You know, I, I just I feel like there's still questions there on, you know, the what have we done between now and then? I also have questions about what have we done to fully finish exploration of the moon or looking at the possibilities there between when we first landed 50 years ago and today. You know, I, I wonder if it's societally kind of like when you plan a vacation. And you can go back to that great place that you, you were there before any of your friends were there, and you're anxious to go back. But the question is, why? I've already been there. Let's go someplace else. And is it about the potential for a habitat being more suitable for uh, the human condition in the future on Mars as opposed to the moon, right? I think there's other reasons why we think that way and we think farther. But I do think, back to your earlier point about um, where you actually sounded pretty liberal, Will, about, you know, making sure that the food's on a table. <laughs> you know, that's a hard and fast reality that on one hand, we want to inspire kids. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we could look at the scientific breakthroughs that we get through pushing the envelope and we could look at the inspiration um, in the eyes of little children uh, who grow up to be scientists and, and how scientific curiosity matters so much to our evolution as a species. But we want to do that, but we also want to be able to provide a capacity for, you know, quality of education in the K through 12 schools and higher education and also for the families to be able to, um, you know, nourish the children, to be able to provide for the health care that's necessary uh, to have open minds. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. And I think it'll be interesting to watch, you know, our continued interest here and what happens with Trump's space ideas and um Whoever wins in 2020, whether that's Trump or a Democrat, sort of what direction we take there. Oh, um, Space Force One. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, Space Force One. Theme song. Yeah, everything. so, so I mean, that's an option. Space Force One. Yep. Um, but I feel like I'm prolonging this conversation just because of what we're turning to next. But I think it's it's time. Um, so obviously this week we've seen um, a lot of political discussion in this country, focusing on race, focusing on the role of the president. Um, even on our own Facebook page for the politics guys, we've seen a lot of back and forth and a lot of um, real anger. And obviously, I know going into this conversation, no matter what I say, I will walk away from this being labeled a racist, a partisan hack, being anti-American, being anti-female, anti-minority, anti-immigration. Um, so those of you who've already preconceived that that's what I am because I'm not going to sit here and just step all over Donald Trump for the next 20 minutes, um, feel free to say whatever you want. Um, that's a preset notion. It's not your fault that you're coming into this already feeling that way, and you're going to leave feeling that way no matter what happens. Um, so I've prepared myself for that. But obviously, Brian, I mean, with what's happened this week, the the calling out of the squad is directly or indirectly, as people want to interpret that. Uh, and then the fallout that's come from that, and then the rally that we saw um, in the middle of the week in North Carolina, and the chance to send her home, and all of this anger and all of this emotion. What's your initial take on it? I mean, obviously, we have a lot of angles we're going to go through here. But when you look at this, what's it make you think? What's it make you say? I, I think it's strategic. I think it's I, I think there's sort of um, 
you know, there's a question of whether it's improvisational madness, as as I saw in something I was reading on Axios this morning. But I think more than that, I, I think he stumbles into something that resonates with his true feelings on a particular topic. But he also realizes the the sales pitch that's associated with it. So I think that Trump's racist tweet, and I think I think there's no getting around the racism that was buried within it. I think it was very calculated. So he sends the tweet out almost immediately afterwards. When questions come up, Kellyanne Conway asks a reporter about his ethnicity, and suddenly it becomes like an okay thing to do, almost like your credibility hinges upon where you're from. And what is the value of that politically? What is the value of that societally? Um, there is no value to that. It's, it's dangerous, in fact, to think of us being um, a democratic state where we have people questioning uh, one another's ethnicity to determine whether or not they should be even entitled to answer uh, to ask a question or to or to serve. Now, what this does, in my opinion, is this this seeks to galvanize that portion of Trump's base that he knows he already has, right? And he wants to build upon it, so he could reach out to an older generation of uh, voters that he's pretty much already got locked down. He could resolidify some aspects of an evangelical base where this pr- kind of provides a trifecta effect for him heading towards the next election cycle. And from when you look at the Democratic and the Republican responses, it's, and I think this is the most important point, Trump's ultimate strategy was basically to put the bait out there, get the bite on the lure, and then say, look at them, that's the Democratic Party. If you want to think about Democrats, that squad, those four people, that's the Democratic Party. And he builds that base. And we've talked about this before. And I think this is something that we all kind of know. Whether you come at it from the right or the left, we know that Trump's strategy is not to wait for news to be out there and to jump on a news, but to create his own news, to portray Pelosi as the racist one, because Pelosi made the comment about his comments being disgraceful and disgusting and racist. And she made the comment about this campaign really being about making America white again. And immediately Trump switched that around and said, now that's racism. And to his base, there are people who are going to say, yeah, that's racism. To his base, they're going to look at the squad and see the squad as what's wrong with America, not what's right with America. And they're going to see, even within the Democratic Party, for those who follow this and look at this on a left-hand side of the equation, we see a big difference between the squad and the mainstream of the Democratic Party. We see a, a, a gap, in fact, between the Democratic Socialist side of that continuum and even the the more liberal section of that continuum. But it's definitely not the Democratic Party. But at a moment in time where we've got 20 candidates going on stage again for a debate, and we're still trying to think about what this platform is going to look like, Trump's voters are not going to be waiting for that to materialize. They're going to be saying, it's that. It's all that. It's yeah, that squad. Yep. And I think the strategy is there. I completely oh, yeah. agree that this was a strategic decision. Um, and I think the way you framed it is also right with there's racism maybe packed inside of that tweet. Explicitly, it's not racist. Um, to me, there's nothing in there that if I saw that pulled out and just put in front of me and said, is this person racist? With that alone, I don't see racism there. But obviously, as we unpack it and know the history, we can... We can draw these conclusions, um, and we'll talk, obviously, more about that in focus. But from the strategy standpoint, I mean, when you think about what this has ultimately done, 
Nobody's talking about Siegel right now. Nobody's talking about connections. I think Bill Clinton's also probably pretty happy that this tweet happened. Um, mm-hmm. I got some pressure off him again. So that's not being discussed. And we've also entered a world now where, to some extent, by labeling everybody that lives in a flyover state that partially thinks they could vote for Donald Trump a racist, what we've really done is given Trump the okay to defend them and actually start saying some things that might be considered even more explicitly racist. Um, if we look at the the North Carolina rally um, held earlier in the week. I mean, what he says about Ocasio-Cortez is more racist than that tweet in my eyes when he mentions that he's just going to call her Cortez because he doesn't have time to use three names. Right. Um, I mean, that gets more explicit, but that's no longer surprising or shocking. Um, well, there's, there's, there's not as much of, uproar. Yeah, there's a lot of racism in there. There's a lot of, uh, you know, sexism in there also about, you know, the portrayal of one's identity with multiple names. And I, I, I don't see it the same way as you do well in terms of whether I see racism on the surface or you have to look for it in there. I, I see the racism, you know, pretty close to, um, you know, actually being right out there because he's identifying a category of people who share certain characteristics and he's making a summary judgment about them and where they may or may not be from with, I, w- I would bet, no strand of knowledge about their ethnicity. Right about their places of national origin, but even to go so far Absolutely. as to say, I totally agree you know, on that. But you know, to this say, is about how you look, not what you are. Yeah, I mean, some of that is it's you know his voters aren't going to be saying, oh wait a minute, let's actually look and see if she's anti-Semitic. But if they say, well, you know, she she's anti-Jewish, or you know, I can't remember exactly how he put it, the voters are going to go with that because that's going to be the gospel truth to him. But I think there's also a, there's a short term and a long term thing here that I'm absolutely fascinated by when I think about the you know the, the shifting demographics of the United States. You know, I was looking at some data recently, um, and by recently I mean you know even this morning, right? That when we look at the the changes that are going on, one of the things that's not happening is that population is not suddenly slow. Population growth is not suddenly slowing. Population growth still is growing in areas where the Hispanic population is growing rapidly in key states to the Republican Party. So if you look at, for example, even just you know Texas and Florida, you can look at the percentages and how they're changing with an upward tick on literally a daily basis in those states with the Hispanic population. And when we look at the estimates and the projections now, when we take the demographic data and we project what's the world going to be like in a year, what's the world going to be like or the country going to be like in 10 years, the projections right now indicate that next year, as rapidly as next year, the entire under-18 population will be non-white. Within 10 years, the under-30 population will be a majority of non-white citizens. And so I think that this raises, you know, an important question because right now what we're seeing is, and I've, I've made this argument before that with the, um, the Trump administration, it's like the bullies finally had their day. You know, these were the kids who said, when I get in office and if we ever get a majority and if we ever have our way, we're going to do all these things, right? Knowing that they're probably not going to last, but while you're there, you're going to go full speed ahead to get them. The question is about lasting impact. And we look at lasting impact, I think it's um, pretty disastrous for the, for the Republican Party unless they do some uh, political shifting very rapidly. So if we see these shifts in the population base, right, and if we see that right now Trump and this faction of the Republican Party could tap into this reliable constituency to get a minimal winning coalition, and remember he was up by 20 among white men, 
what's it like among that non-white population as that shrinks? The long-term prospects for the Republican Party to deal with the shifting demographic nature of our country, I think, is going to be a real challenge. Because as the Hispanic population, for example, just taking that one, grows, what's the message that the Republican Party is going to make to plausibly attract and keep the Hispanic vote intact? Right now, Trump could say these things. But if you're looking ahead even 10 years, it's going to be a real challenge for the Republican Party. I don't disagree with any of that. I just don't think Donald Trump cares. No, because um, it's all about right now. Thing, it's all about right now, and I think that's where Republicans are. And I think a lot of what he managed to do with this is move the Democrats so much further left. I mean, my biggest, as a Republican, my biggest concern when this tweet broke was I thought Pelosi and Cortez and the rest of the squad, and there I am, Ocasio-Cortez and the rest of the squad, were getting ready to take each other out, and that he played a misstep by giving them a common ally. But instead, we're basically in a situation where Nancy Pelosi now has to defend her bitter inner party enemy. And that's going to draw them closer because, let's be honest, the squad is not going to be happy unless they try to impeach Trump. And I don't think Pelosi's going down that path. Um, I think we keep seeing these half-hearted, half-assed bills calling for impeachment that don't even get media attention because people know there's no chance they're coming to fruition. And because of that, by actually pushing them closer together, he has helped move centrist Democrats further left. Yeah, I think it's... At least in perception. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you hit on a couple of interesting observations there that, you know, we can unpack them just a little bit. Because, you know, when we think about the squad and a composition of it, um, I, th- I thought it was hilarious, uh, the impact that The Onion has. Remember, throughout history, The Onion has kind of um, fooled people, and people thought it was legitimate news. I got to check my but, Facebook feed every day to be like, crap, is that real or is that The Onion again? <laughs> exactly, right? But, you know, just uh, when was this? Just... Um, the uh, day before yesterday or so, Bill Pascrell, um from New Jersey basically sent a tweet out basically saying, well, how about it? You know, because The Onion made the joke about him wanting to join the squad. So here he is kind of saying, I want to join the squad because this is kind of like to, to one group. This is these are the cool kids. These are the ones who are the rebellious ones uh, to another group and cluster. These are the ones that are distracting from the message of unifying the Democratic Party in order to help secure a victory in a 2020 election. Right. So there's the thorn in the side that's actually galvanized a certain part of the Democratic Party. Um, I do think, you know, this is going to be one of those things that it's going to pass in terms of electoral consequences, but it's not going to pass in the minds of people who care about racial um, uh, divide. It's it's not going to pass to people who care about social justice. It's not going to care. It's not going to pass to people who think about a larger conception of ourselves as a civil society because Stuff broke down, man. I mean, we we had somebody dro- basically dro- instead of dropping a mic and walking away, putting down a gavel and walking away. You know, we had immediately Al Green uh, issuing a privileged resolution to call for impeachment. And now again, you know, if you are in a particular column where these issues are the issues that define the hill upon which you're going to plant your flag and fight. You're going to do that boldly, and you're going to do that courageously. But we know what happened with the um, with the Democratic response, right? The Democratic response ranged from a formal rebuking of the president to a censure of the president to an impeachment of the president um, to an impeachment move uh, under the privilege resolution. 
Well, the privilege resolution for impeachment failed, and this this is kind of a recurrent yeah, and this is a recurring theme of conversations we had in our last broadcast and also over the last you know couple of years now, Will, which is um, to the average voter, you know, the Democrats, even Nancy Pelosi is kind of saying, let's stop with and talk about impeachment unless and until we have something that we could really say we got them, right? Because all it does is feed into the news loop that benefits the other side, that here they go again, here they go again, here they go again. The Democrats can't even get their house together. So for the Republican side of the equation, they don't even have to fight back. They're like, look, even the, even the Democrats aren't down with this, right? And the way Trump will spin that is, you know, they talk about impeachment, but they don't even really want to impeach me. So then it fizzles out and it, and it falls by the wayside. And what this does is I think it's going to be interesting when we look ahead to the the next debate that we have coming up as we see the the candidates trying to distinguish themselves uh, as as front runners. How are they going to be defining the party who to a segment now there's this notion of extreme radical leftist socialist non quote unquote American uh, agitators. Yeah. And- I have to say, I mean, you talked about the process breaking down, and the one thing that's really rubbed me this week, listening to the news, reading comments on Facebook stories, listening even even comments on articles, listening to Colin shows and NPR, the anger over Nancy Pelosi finding herself in trouble on the House floor um, for what she was saying about the president, and people, of course, making the the long range argument of, well, how can we not get mad at Trump, but we can get mad at Pelosi for saying these things about Trump. And it's not understanding the rules and procedures. Twitter is its own animal. Mm-hmm. We can say whatever we want on Twitter. It's a different type right. of speech. There aren't rules and regulations on there saying that these types of implied messages are are problematic. So I, I'm just so tired of people being so blind to both sides that they see theirs, see whatever happens against theirs, and automatically make their choices. And that goes both ways. Yeah, because one of the arguments that came up was, Nancy Pelosi seek to enforce a rule by breaking a rule. And, you know, it was, you know, you can't claim a moral high ground. Now, the question is, did she really break a rule? Um, I, I don't think there's any evidence to say that she broke a rule. She has the authority to be able to bring things up and enter it as a matter of record on a floor um, in a Capitol building, saying things which are, I think, empirically true. I don't think that anybody would argue that what he said, well, I, no, I'm, I'm going to scrub that because I'm sure somebody's going to immediately say, I'd say that. But really, I think it is disgraceful. When, it, when a president says, you know, basically the love it or leave it argument, when the president makes accusations, when a president has things that even have a, a, a tinge of racism associated with it, there's something disgraceful about a lot of how Trump, I would say virtually everything that Trump does, does have a modicum of disgrace associated with it. He's 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 taken us down on a race to the bottom of the barrel where any, anything is fair game. And we've normalized things that historically haven't been normalized. So I think to a normal, rational uh, person like myself who comes at it from the left, and that's my definition of normal and rational, is that it was disgraceful, that it was disgusting, that it was racist. And I think it would be hard to argue against that, especially when you take the message and you couple it with the people about whom it was said. And I think that she had the right to be able to um, to say that and for it to remain as a matter of record. Yeah, and again, I mean, it's, it's just the, the position and the rules. It's just to me, I still look at what the Democrats are doing in general. And it's, 
it's that question of you're going into an election, you're still trying to impeach somebody that only helps his base rally around him. And you're basically telling anybody who supports him that they're sexist, homophobic, and racist. And then being like, why are you voting for him, you sexist, racist, homophobe? Vote for one of our candidates. And at the end of the day, I'm not going to stand up and say that I like what Donald Trump said or what he's done over the last week or over the course of his lifetime. I don't like all of it. But you know what I do like? I like lower taxes. I like less regulated government. I like somebody who's willing to reach out to foreign leaders that we haven't talked to in decades or lifetimes. I like secure borders. I like the idea of immigration being legally curbed in a way that protects Americans. Um, and at the end of the day, when I look at the Democratic field, there's nothing there for me with that. Yet. Um, you see, I would, I would go toe-to-toe with you on all those observations because I think the economy has the illusion of performing successfully because for a category of people who are fairly well off, they're doing extremely well. For people who are entering the labor force, they're not doing as badly. But if we look at things involving race and gender and um, economic justice, there's still a colossal gap that exists there. And I think this is sort of when we start thinking about the Democratic candidates on the issues of the economy. This is obviously where uh, people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are going to come up as the um, the Democratic icons. I understand your point about having secure borders, but then we have the testimony uh, that's going on that's gone on this week uh, before Congress about the treatment of individuals on our southern border. Um, we have the, the 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 question that comes up as you mentioned it about forging relationships with other nations uh, to strengthen those bonds. Yet we have a colossal issue going on with China right now that could potentially destabilize um, segments of the American political economy. Right? I mean, the Chinese economy would endure and thrive much more effectively than the American economy would right now because the Treasury is held so much by um, by China. And, and the reason why they're not going to play their Trump card is because it would it would hurt them. So I think, uh, you know, on all these issues, and I think this is the healthy thing about a discussion like this, Will, is that if you look at it from either side, we can look and say, hey, look, there are people who are employed who previously were not employed. However, we still have a wage gap. We could look and say that there's a category of people who are climbing the rungs of the ladder of success, but we could also look and say that there's not economic justice in the United States. We can look and say that, you know, security of a nation is a paramount concern, but yet the security and the stability of the border is still separating families and having people living in squalor, right? So I think that, you know, this the debate, if we were to extract all of the drama and if we took away Twitter and if we took away Trump and if we took away, you know, the hard um, topics as presented in a way that really makes us dig in our heels on our sides, what we're seeing is, you know, a really fertile ground for a very robust conversation about you know, what is the actual state of health of the economy? What is the state of health with regards to security? What is the state of our relationships uh, on a global plane? Because I, th- I think they're in a more perilous place than a promising place right now. Yeah. And again, I mean, I think that's a fair assertion and a fair pushback on it. It's just, again, coming from the right, it's looking at it and saying, taxes are down. I mean, I'll just take one issue. And I guarantee you, out of those 20 people standing on stage in Detroit, if forced to ask, all 20 are going to say they're raising taxes. They're going to have to to do half of what they're talking about. And just in general, I look at everything you just mentioned as being at that that really important point in history where we figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work. I mean, the idea of democracy is there too. Other things I've seen on social media this week are people going back to Donald Trump lost the popular vote by 3 million votes. 
He did. Donald Trump was democratically elected. You may not like the style of democracy. You may not like the system that got him there, but it was democratically done. Um, and to try to argue otherwise is just showing that we have people that are just flying at any little desperate rung to try to bring um, their side back to the lead here. And again, that's both ways. That's not just Democrats doing it to Trump. We have plenty of Republicans um, really digging in over this stuff. I mean, I've even seen the, seen the old John Adams quote thrown around a bunch in recent days, um, all about how government isn't for a rich class and a rich family or one person. And I sit there and I just laugh at that every time because if you've ever read John Adams' life work, the man was brought into privilege, became president just because of George Washington and ensured that his son would eventually follow and be president too. Um, so, I mean, it's just so ironic that we keep pulling and we don't even bother looking at context. And a lot of people brought up a really good point this week that almost what we're feeling here is the same problems that emerged when the Tea Party was on the right pushing the same way against Obama. Um, and there were even Republicans during that saying, this is not the way to go. Jesus, what are we doing? And now we're sitting there, and I think there are folks on the left that are saying, this is not the way we need this fight to happen. If we want to take advantage, Brian, of all those long-term demographic impacts you've talked about, because otherwise we just end up in a scenario where the political system as a whole ends up broken. I mean, for the love of God, I found the first candidate I'm going to donate to for the next election cycle this week. And I don't even know her name. I just know she's running against Ocasio-Cortez and has a chance. Um, and I'll figure out her name later. But that's where we've come to is where this vitriol politics has come into play. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody, as I just confessed. I don't want AOC to win, and I'll do whatever I can to help somebody beat her. Um, and that just happens more and more, and that's not a good reason to vote for somebody. If you're going to be negative, we'll leave the country. Sorry, that was yeah. too easy. Go, go home. Right, right. Yeah, go back to wherever you came from. Right? We can all go home in That's that right. case. But I, I think that there's, um, in, in what you said, what we do uh, societally is we, we cherry pick. I mean, you know, I, I still dabble in constitutional law questions, and um, I'm always astonished by the people that will cherry pick their favorite quote and miss the larger context. Um, I'm still astonished by, you know, things that I'm like, don't, doesn't anybody read anymore? Did you read the full sentence? Did you read the whole paragraph? Did you read the whole ruling? Did you read the whole book? Right. Do you no, understand the, the answer moment is no. in history? No, exactly. We don't. And in fact, some of the, um, one of the responses during, you know, when the Republicans were, when some Republicans were asked how they responded to Trump's tweet, you know, one of the, the, the responses ranged from we're the party of Lincoln. What the hell does that mean? I mean, I know what the message is, but it's really out of context, right? It's just trying to shift it back to something which says, hey, you know, if you, you're going to make an accusation about race, remember that that Lincoln was a Republican, and we've got this long history. So, you know, don't throw stones. Oh, Lord. Um, Going I back to the Democrats the, the, and Martin Luther King here, it feels like. Yeah, so it's it's – you know, we are at a, we're at a dirty place, but then again, you know, in light of your observation, Will, about understanding historical context, um, we can't kid ourselves into thinking that politics used to be clean and it suddenly got dirty. Um, it's not. You know, we, we both lived in uh, the Midwest for a while and very close to the land of Lincoln, and when you go to the um, museum, you know, you, you see even the political advertising that was just absolutely so brutal. We could look back to Thomas Jefferson's tenure as president and the years preceding it. Um, you know, muckraking and digging up dirt on opponents and not being um, too concerned about consequences uh, is is older 
than we would like to acknowledge. We romanticize the past and think we used to be better than this. We were always pretty bad, right? Yep. Um, it's how it's how this we selectively it's just history. amplified. Yeah, I will say this though that it's always been bad, but it hasn't been like this. You know, the Trump administration has introduced a new vocabulary and a new style that historically has been at variance with how sitting presidents um, behave, except for maybe Goldwater in 68 on yep. the issue of race. Yeah. And again, I mean, I think the, the really interesting part to end this for me is we sit there and we talk about how we like to change and grow and develop and we learn from mistakes. Um, and even outside of the stuff with Trump this week, I mean, I'm sitting here all week watching people talk about whatever the, the Facebook app is called that gives you the old person pictures of yourself. Um, and I'm looking at this, I'm like, I have so many friends that I know are anti-Trump, anti-Russia, we can't collude. And they're basically just handing over photographs of themselves to the Russian, um, <laughs> almost daring them to do as they wish with it. Um, so it's just, it's one of those where I'm like, as a society, we say we want to grow and develop, but at the end of the day, we want to do what's comfortable. And we see a lot of comfortableness right now. And the thing that concerns me the most about Trump's tweet storm over the weekend is that allows for a level of comfort with things that people will take a different way than Donald Trump is presenting them himself. Um, meaning that I am worried about now what a 30-year-old man sitting at home in some random state now thinks is okay to say or do or think based on the fact that it is in line with the views of his friends. And I think that's where um, you and I really agree, despite you know ideological differences. I think we, we all agree with the normalizing tendency that uh, what used to be hidden beneath rocks and stones is now, and we've seen this with terrible consequences, right? It's it's more visible. It's more proudly displayed. It's more out there with almost um, a permission slip to say, our president validates this. And you have you know, people on the far right who are upset with Trump because like he didn't go far enough with the message. And you're like, okay, now we're entering into some really you know, dangerous waters, because I think at the core of it, and, and, and to, to sort of wrap this part of it up on a, on a really, um, I think, a, a kind way, is that most Republicans and most Democrats and most liberals and most conservatives really don't harbor racist, sexist views. Now, we have to remember that some of these ideas and some of these behaviors, as reprehensible as they are, don't 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 apply to the average person, but it brings out a segment that's visible, a segment that's real, a segment that's mobilized, a segment that helps secure a base that the Democratic Party is going to have a really difficult time on seating. Absolutely, um, we might as well stay on this sort of topic uh, to a degree and talk about. Barr and Ross and their contempt charges that came down this week related to, to the census question. Um, again, it feels like a lot more political gamemanship. Um, it feels like it's, you know, a an attack on a symptom, not an attack on the actual disease or what's being perceived as a disease. I mean, from your view, what do these contempt charges mean? What do you think comes from them? Is this meaningless? What about the census question to that extent? I mean, you know, do you think this is actually done or do you think we still have more to debate and hear about? I think the census question is, for all intents and purposes, um, dead and buried at this juncture. You know, the, there was, you know, the issue between the administration and the Supreme Court, where like the courts, like pretty much, we 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 spoke on this issue, right? Um, 
you know, there, there's, there seems to be a clear sense of responsibility between the three branches of government trying to get a question on there for the purposes for which it was seemingly atten- intended. Um, it didn't happen if for no other reason than logistics, right? It never made it on there. Um, so for the, for the Democrats to go after, um, Ross and Barr, I, I think it was not just low hanging fruit, but it was, it, it was a, a pair of individuals that you couldn't not get the result that they wanted out of this. You could not, you couldn't not get the, um, the contempt charges filed. Now the question is, and, and you know, we talked about this last time. It's like, so what? You know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, so what? I think the closest we come to the answer to the so what question is that Wednesday's vote, um, basically gives authority to the oversight panel to take Barr and Ross to federal court to enforce subpoenas for the materials that are in question. In other words, this brings up the likelihood of uh, criminal law being used for people who are, you know, high-ranking officials during this administration's tenure. And things like this have come up before. I mean, well, actually once, right? Uh, Eric Holder during Obama's administration uh, in his tenure as as attorney general was brought up for criminal prosecution. But Barr and Ross, I just think it's a lot more like political drama. And I think when we when we separate ourselves from it for just a minute, if we went out and did one of those person on the street interviews and said, "Who's Ross? Who's Barr?" Nobody would know. Nobody or would care. Know. Yeah. And, but the thing is, like, even before they got to caring, they wouldn't even know. Now, and I, if they and did if, know, it's probably because they're anti-Trump or pro-Trump and looked this up and kind of learned this just to make sure they could argue their side. Yeah. And in a grand scheme of things, like what's going to happen as a consequence of this? Is it going to be material that comes out? If And this goes back to the, the conversation about the Teflon Don situation, right? That even if you get this, you know, it's like looking again for the smoking gun and where the smoke does not necessarily fire. Because even if they say, oh, look, yes, there was some interesting intent that the president had by including those questions into the census. Um, but it didn't happen. It didn't succeed. And and to the public, it's going to be a so what issue. And, you know, I I think the public appetite for some of these things is is pretty much beyond its expiration point. I Yeah, I especially think- in this one, I think. Because, again, when it comes back to that census question, the only concern about the census question was that it was Donald Trump wanting it included. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. I mean, the census question has been around. The citizenship question on census documents, on the community survey, on the long form of the census has been around for a while. Um, Obviously, it wasn't on the short form when it came about, so not most households were seeing it, but it was still there. So the question itself is benign. It's the use of the question that was really being, you know, invoked here. And I just think, again, it reflects where we are in terms of, of paranoia, right or not right. Um, and just how we view how information is going to be used, how we view surveys, how we view polls. I mean, I was looking this week um, on Thursday, looking at the American National Election Study that's coming out with the next wave. And they've started asking questions to figure out who's cheating or who's trying to cheat when answering a survey by putting in all of these just random Supreme Court cases and asking people if they know what year the cases were decided. Um, Gear versus Connecticut in 1986. I, I think that was the case that was on that I looked at today. Um, <laughs> you're the constitutional scholar, and that says something right there. But their basic idea is, if you're willing to cheat on this, the rest of your answers are probably either invalid or you've been driven there by somebody. Um, so it just reflects this societal piece that that's tough to put our finger on. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we know some people who are really good at this pulling in a digital age kind of stuff. And I think that that'd be really um, a, a great uh, episode to focus on right now because it, it's almost like radar and radar detection. And, and it's almost like, you know, gotcha politics has invaded every part of the political and social landscape, whether it's in the media, whether it's in polls, whether it's in a census, it's, you know, how can data be used? And this is one of the big questions with big data too, right? Is that if you have a big enough data set, if you have all the controls that are built in, you could select if you way through uh, an instrument in order to be able to get what you want and invalidate responses based upon the results that you get. Which brings me back to, you know, I think, when when you made the comment that you made earlier about, you know, what's the purpose of all of this? I was thinking about Jim Jordan of Ohio, you know, who's the top-ranking Republican on the oversight panel, and he said literally almost what you said, well, which is, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? All because they don't want a simple question on the census. This resolution is ridiculous, and we should, we should vote it down. Now, he could have actually stopped before he got to the all because they don't want a simple question on the census and and just have it stop that. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Because to the average voter, the question is, you know, what is the purpose and what is the value of this? And if, if it is to say that the data could be used in a way that could minimize the voting rights of a specific category of voters, that that's a hugely important issue. So if there was something really there, that if there would be material evidence that could be produced that would say that this was part of an orchestrated um, effort by the White House using Barr and using Ross in order to systematically disenfranchise categories of voters from offsetting the election uh, in a way that could have benefited the Democratic Party then that is a smoking gun. Then that is real. Then that is really bad. And I think that's the question, which is what's kind of at the heart of the eligibility of individuals to to vote. Yep, absolutely. Let's switch and do one last uh, quick story again on the politically charged nature. Um, On Thursday, uh, we saw uh, Interim Secretary McAleenan testify before the House on uh, conditions at border facilities, border holding facilities, which has obviously been a, a hotbed political issue. It's also been a, a social media wreck this week for me as I've had to watch all of the, the AOC memes as people <laughs> cry at different fences and borders. Um, and then we obviously had Mike Pence actually going down and confirming a lot of what we were hearing from Democrats and kind of depoliticizing part of this and making this more of a, a humane issue. Um, I'll personally start by saying that I felt what, what Macalina was talking about during these hearings was not the not the sexiest I would have expected. It wasn't as back and forth. It wasn't as revealing. Instead, it felt very much like a plea to Congress to do something so this stopped being an issue. Um, I think his basic defense was the conditions wouldn't even be a debatable point if you all could work together to come up with immigration reform that actually makes sense and solves some of these problems. Um, and again, I don't think there's any question. Some of the things that were being described are terrible and terrifying. I will say that some of the Democrats Democrat, Democrats who went to the border um, didn't help by using hyperbole and exaggeration, um, AOC being the main offender. And I also think we saw the politi- politicalization of the border with, you know, wannabe dreamer presidential candidates like Tim Ryan showing up and thinking, my God, I might go from three voters to four if I do this, um, and really taking away the power of what they're seeing because of political purpose. 
But it's clear this is an issue that needs to keep being talked about. But what did you think about the testimony and what do you think about what's happening at the border and how we address that? If I were to look at it as a TV show, I'd say, oh, man, it wasn't really very exciting. You know, I, I think that when we separate out the testimony, I think you're exactly right that um, when you have the Department of Homeland Security testifying before Congress, and his point is not really, he, he kind of actually actually shifted the focus to where he's looking for a durable solution to the, to the crisis, and that ultimately lies with Congress. And, you know, he did bring up, you know, issues involving um, the perceived hyperbole from the other side. And I don't think anybody's denying the fact that the conditions are deplorable. I think the question is what's, you know, what's the value of, is, is there hyperbole? What's the value of politicizing it when if we step back for just a moment, we find people on the left and on the right who are basically saying conditions are simply not appropriate. So when we look not only at the testimony that came out <clears throat> during this week, and we look back at, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, you know, passionate testimony um, about her perception of what's happening at the border. And we looked at the DHS Inspector General Jennifer Costello's report that said that, you know, the border needs immediate assistance to address acute and worsening crises that involve overcrowding. I think that there's actually there's actually a middle ground that's easy to find. And when a vice president basically says, you know, tough stuff. I mean, that that was really a uniquely um, evasive way of addressing it. But it was a way of, uh, you know, I think clearly you could see in Pence's message that, you know, when you when you proclaim that something is, you know, quote unquote, tough stuff, it's a way of acknowledging that it's bad, but that it's a trickier situation but it needs to be resolved. I mean, the conditions at the border, I don't think anybody's going to say, oh, it's fine, leave it alone, right? Something's got to be done. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, again, I think with Pence, um, and I know a lot of listeners are not going to agree with this, there is a, a more of a humanitarian element there. Um, and I think with Pence, you saw a little bit of that, where while this is a political issue, I think his visit and his comments and his demeanor afterwards sort of suggested the this made me uncomfortable, and we need to remember that while this could be a pawn in our game of chess, this is also directly impacting some human beings in a in a pretty real way. Yeah, and I think that that's an area where, you know, when I was observing and, and, and reading transcripts and looking at interview responses, I, I kept coming back to some common denominators that, aside from the fringiest of the fringe elements, the left and the right both, both agree that the conditions are not acceptable and overcrowding is having an impact and something needs to be done. And the DHS leadership's response effectively was, you know, in a nutshell, Congress has a, has a responsibility and a right to do something, come up with a durable solution. And it's not about building bigger um, spaces. It's about coming up with more impactful, public policies. And I think here's where the right and the left would disagree, because the right's argument would be, we would take the testimony for adorable solution to the crisis to mean coming up with a harder line on immigration. Uh, the Democratic response would be, we don't need a harder line on immigration. We just need a more appropriate and humane way of dealing with the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that'll continue to obviously come up and be be discussed as this. This issue doesn't seem anywhere near um, 
close. Nope. Well, as soon as Brian and I are done recording this show, we'll be doing our special supporters exclusive show. This week, we'll be talking about uh, the 9-11 worker bill in the Senate and Rand Paul and Mike Lee's actions there. We'll be talking about Planned Parenthood and then also very briefly probably about the trade war impact on both China and the United States. If you're a supporter, that should be in your podcast step by the time you hear me talking about this. That's just one of the supporters' only things we've got for you. To become a supporter or to find out more, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com forward slash support. If you have questions, comments, corrections, random thoughts you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. After the discussion about Trump and racism, I am sure that there will be uh, a lot of comments coming, either there or on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. Subscribing to the show really helps us out, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is the best advertising we get, and we obviously appreciate everything that everyone listening does for us. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use also helps. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andra Masker, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday, and we hope you'll join us then. Thanks.